I'm sure that many of you know the phrase, c'est la vie. Apologies if my French isn't quite right. Its meaning is, that's life, or such is life. And some people use it when life doesn't go as they planned, or what they expect, or even as they want. By saying the phrase, they're ultimately saying, that's the way things are, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm just going to pick myself up and carry on regardless. When you think about it, that phrase portrays quite a negative view of life. It portrays something, even though they're trying to be positive, it is actually quite negative. But it also provides a great opportunity to share the gospel. We can tell those that use this phrase that, yes, whilst life is this way, it's not how life is meant to be. Life is marred by sin, but that's not how it's meant to be. God's designed life in a different way. We can then share with them the truth that's found in the gospel, in the Bible. We can share with them the hope for the future. That's only found in Jesus. We just sung of it now, haven't we? The hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave, to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing is satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, for I am truly home. I wonder, how do you react when life is difficult? For even as believers, we face suffering. We face difficulties. We may not face them in the right way. We may not face them in the right way God wants us to. The Bible is clear there will be times of suffering. There will be times of difficulties that are challenging. We need to therefore ensure that we face it how God wants us to. Because he wants us to face those sufferings, but he wants us to do it in the right way. And that's why I want us to look at Romans 8 tonight. For in this chapter, Paul reminds us how important it is that our perspective in life is right, even at difficult times. Well, I'd imagine that many of you know Romans 8, or at least some verses from it. It's full of great truths that bring assurance, comfort, peace, and hope. Some have preached entire series on this uh, chapter. It just illustrates how much there is to unpack. Obviously, we're limited in our time tonight. So all I want to see tonight is what Paul tells us about keeping our perspective right. Our title for the sermon tonight, then, is The Christian Life, Keeping Our Perspective Right. So the Christian life, keeping our perspective right. It's clear Paul recognises there are different ways of dealing with suffering. In verse 18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's two stances. We can be focused on the sufferings that we experience in this world, or we can focus on the glory that is to be revealed, the glory that's to come. But what are the sufferings he's referring to? I'm sure many of you know that Paul knew what it is to suffer. We could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to see many of the different ways he did suffer. He was beaten, imprisoned, flogged, shipwrecked, many different ways in which he suffered. But the suffering he's referring to here is not something specific. He's not referring to a moment of suffering he experienced or that we may experience. What he's referring to is everything that we experience in this present age. The point Paul is making is that everything we experience in this world is not as it should be. It's all corrupted by sin. Yes, there will be specific times we face specific sufferings, we'll face difficulties and troubles and doubts, and we'll struggle. But even when life is going okay, even when life is looking good, it's not what it should be. Paul reminds the people he's writing to, and he reminds us that all of creation is subjected to the bondage of sin. Everything we experience whilst living in this sin-stained world 
is mud. Our frailty of the human bodies are mud. But he states, all these negative experiences he experiences, all this negative he sees, he counts as no comparison to the glory that's to come. Paul clearly has a perspective that he's looking to this future glory. Paul shares with us that this is his perspective. Well, he's telling us his stance and to encourage us, to encourage his readers then and to encourage us today. He wants us to have this same stance, this same perspective. So those of us who are Christian tonight, he's telling us or asking us, is this your stance? Do we have this perspective in life? Are we living our lives in the manner Paul does or are we looking at the sufferings of this world? Do we let the negativity of this fallen world bring us down? Do we get frustrated by living in the fallen sinful world? It's right, and the Bible tells us we should be affected by what we see. We should be saddened to see that sin has had a devastating effect on God's creation. In fact, Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We can also see that Jesus himself, he was saddened when he saw the reality that sin had had on his creation. Think of the story of Lazarus. I'm sure we all know it well. In John 11, we find that when Jesus saw Lazarus had died, he was affected by what he saw. We are told, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, many people take this just to mean that Lazarus was a, a close family friend. Jesus loved Lazarus, therefore he was upset to see him die. But they missed the point. Yes, Jesus wept with his friends and the family, and he was saddened. But Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to be brought back to life. Jesus knew he could do it. He knew he was going to do it. So why was he so upset to see Lazarus dead? Why was he so troubled? Well, because he had witnessed the real effect that sin had on his creation. So if Jesus was so moved to see creation marred by sin, then why, why shouldn't we? But we must never let this sadness, never let this sorrow turn to negativity. But how often do we moan? How often do we behave in a negative way about what we see? or what we have to experience, and what we have to deal with. Have you ever wondered why that is the case? Why do we moan so much? It's because we are focused on the moment. Our perspective is wrong. Now, if you would speak to my family, and my daughters in particular, they would tell you I have my oddities. Maybe you saw that something of it this morning, that I, my mind works in a cryptic way. So as I was preparing this, a little play on words came to my head. So hopefully by me sharing it, it will help you understand. So think of the word moan. Yeah, it starts with the letter M. So does the word moment. Now think of the word groan. It starts with G and R. I want to use two, those two letters to represent glory revealed. Perhaps it will help if you can have it on the screen. So if we look at the moment, obviously the M is moan. If we look at the glory revealed, the G and the R, we groan. There is a clear difference about what it is to moan and what it is to groan. Moaning is all about negativity. Groaning is, we don't like it, but we realize that something's better. And that's where it comes. If we look at the moment, we tend to be negative. If we look at the glory revealed, we groan, we long for, we yearn for something better. Thank you. So that's why Paul has written this, to remind or even challenge us as believers to make sure that our perspective is right. For don't forget, he's writing the book of Romans to Christians. And we can see that he's writing to Christians. At the start of Romans, in Romans 1, he says... To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So when you think of Romans as a letter, that would be the salutation at the start. You know, the dear sir or madam in a formal letter, or in a love letter, to my darling wife, to my one true love. 
not that I've written them a love letter for a while. Uh, probably today you don't write love letters, it's all in the text, isn't it? But that's the greeting at the start. Paul is writing to Romans. And we can see he continues the way he writes. He's writing to believers. In chapter 1, verse 8, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So in addition to challenging us as believers, the way Paul has incorporated these verses into his writing, or rather the way God has led him to incorporate it, it helps us when we seek to tell others about the gospel. This chapter not only tells us that the way life is, because it is subject to this corruption of sin, but it helps us tell people it's only temporary. One day God's glory will be revealed in all those that believe, those that are in Christ. But it goes further. It tells us everything we need to show them how they too can receive a share in that glory. For in Romans, in particular chapter 8, Paul provides quite a detailed and clearly structured Christian theology. Perhaps that's why this chapter is such an encouragement to so many believers, because it reminds us of the glorious truth that God justifies guilty, condemned sinners by grace alone, through faith alone. And then none can pluck him from their hand, his hand. So God willing, in the time we've got left this evening, what I intend to do is to have a look at this passage and see why we can look forward to that day. It's all very well saying this is what our perspective should be, that we look to that day when glory will be revealed. But you could turn around and say to me, easier said than done. And it's true. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. And so, let me remind you of some of the things contained in this passage. I have four points, not eight. And each is a truth which enables us to look forward to that day of glory. And all four points have headings that feature letters of life. Okay, so the first one is we live by the Spirit. So there's the L of life. We live by the Spirit. This passage clearly tells us, especially the first part of chapter 8, that there's two ways of living our lives. Verse 1 to 11 provides a detailed explanation of what these are. In fact, it can be proved to be quite confusing when you look at it. There's mention of walking according to the flesh, walking according to the spirit. There's mentions living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit. And it goes further, mentions of having our mindset on the flesh or mindset on the uh, spirit. It's quite a minefield. So let's go back to basics to try and understand what it says. All of creation is subjected to the bondage of sin. And that includes all of us, all of humanity. Our very being, our very nature is corrupt. It's sinful and disobedient to God. In fact, it's incapable of being obedient to God. It's not that we choose not to be. We cannot. And that's quite clearly in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Our very nature is against God. And because it controls everything we do, everything that we say and think, in of ourselves, we are unable to please God. We saw it in the children's talk this morning, didn't it? The way I controlled Amelia, that's how our sin controls us. Verse 8 tells us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when Paul refers to having our mind set on the flesh, or walking according to the flesh, when he uses the word flesh, he means our sinful nature. Not our actual bodies, but our sinful nature. And all that wants us to do is things that gratify itself. Things which are corrupt. Things which are evil. Things that are only about the here and now. But Paul reminds his readers, who are believers, that they are no longer like this. They are no longer subject to the corruption of sin. They are a new creation, a different person. 
whilst they still live in a body that is dying because of sin, whilst we still live in a world that is subject to the frailty of sin, we are not controlled by sinful nature. We are controlled by God's spirit. And verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. He's reminding them that because they've believed and called upon the name of Jesus, not only has Jesus defeated the control that sin has over them, but they have the spirit of God dwelling in them. And this is what enables believers to live a life for God. This is what enables us to look forward to that day of glory, to focus ourselves on a heavenly treasure. So when Paul refers to walking according to the Spirit, he means that we follow the leading of the Spirit as it attunes us to the life that God wants us to live, a life that he wants us to follow. Paul's warning, though, is that we can easily succumb, can't we? Our sinful nature, whilst we're no longer controlled by it, it can still influence us. It can still affect what we think, what we say, or what we do. That's why so many times Paul reminds us, set your minds on the Spirit. He says similar things in his other writings. Uh, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Allow me to use an illustration. Think of a pirate ship. Yep, you can tell it's a pirate ship. It's a Jolly Roger flying high. It's got a plank to walk the prisoners off. It's got cannons. But it's also got damage to it. Damage to the bow, damage to the rigging, damage to the mast, where it's been involved with fights with the ships. The pirate ship is on the sea. Sometimes the sea can be calm, but sometimes it can be rough when the storms hit. All pirate ships have a captain. So tonight, think of a captain. Captain Blackbeard, do you know who that is? No? Captain Jack Sparrow. Must have checked, yeah. He's our pirate captain. He's the one who controls everything the crew do, everything the boat does. Where the boat goes, it's all down to the captain. Now, what is it that pirates want to do? They go looking for treasure. Yeah, they want to steal gold wherever they can find it, and they will attack other boats to get their treasure. That's all that Captain Blackbeard knows what to do, and that's all he wants to do. Now, imagine, along comes the um, royal armour, uh, the Royal Fleet, sorry. Yeah, they have a battle. And the captain of the Royal Fleet defeats Captain Blackbeard. He now becomes the captain of the pirate ship. For a boat can only have one captain. And there's a key difference between Captain Blackbeard and the captain of the Royal Fleet. The captain of the Royal Fleet does not want to go looking to plunder or steal treasure. He just wants to take that ship home to port. As he takes the home boat home to port, it's still on the same sea. They can be calm one minute and stormy the next. The pirate ship is still a pirate ship. It's still got the same damage. It's still got all the same marks that have come from the fights it's been involved in. And it's still got the same crew. And all they know what to do is be a pirate, because that's all they've been taught. But the captain of the Royal Fleet is now in control. He's there to teach the crew a new way to live. He's there to tell them, to show them, to help them, and empower them to become sailors of the Royal Fleet. If you hadn't guessed it, we are the pirate ships. Captain Blackbeard represents our sinful nature, and the captain of the Royal Navy is the Holy Spirit. The sea represents our life. When we become a Christian, we're not removed from this fallen world, but we are to live through it. We are to face the challenges and the difficulties that come from living in a fallen world. 
whilst we live in this world, we've got the scars that have been caused by what we've had to face, the scars that have been caused by our sins. We bear the effect of having a sinful nature, but we're not controlled by it. Instead, as I've already said, we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. That enables us to say no to sin. If we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, if we set our minds on the Spirit, he will attune us to the will of God. So Paul makes it quite clear in verses 9 and 10, the Spirit of God only dwells in those who are Christians, those that have put their faith in Christ. And that brings me on to my second point, the I in life. We are in Christ. As well as emphasizing the fact that it's only because we are in Christ and he is in us that we have the Spirit to dwell in us. Paul reminds us of this great truth for another reason. To understand that, we need to understand why Paul wrote this letter. It's believed that part of the reason why he wrote Romans is because he had heard in the churches in Rome that there were disagreements ongoing between the Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish believers were adamant that they still had to stick to the Mosaic laws. They were teaching that adherence to them was necessary as part of the Christian's life because their salvation depended on it. Paul therefore seeks to correct this. He seeks to tell his readers then and us today, with no doubt whatsoever, the only way of salvation is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not through works. Paul, therefore, at the start of this chapter, makes it absolutely clear that the only way by which we face no condemnation is if we are in Christ Jesus. We can look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The people he was writing to in Rome were aware the Bible is clear in its teaching that sin is a problem. It brings us under the wrath of God and we are all to face his judgment and punishment. But Paul seeks to still remind them of this fact. In Romans chapter 5, he writes of the facts. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. Or chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, if you were to read through the preceding chapters of Romans, you would see this truth occurring time and time again. But then in chapter 8, Paul zeroes in on the error of their teaching. He talks about the law that they were so keen to adhere to. For God has done by what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul here is saying that this law that they're holding to, the only thing it could do was to highlight their sin. It could do nothing to defeat their sin, for all it did was set out God's standards. And what are God's standards? Complete perfection. Complete obedience to his rules. And as we've already seen, we are sinful in our very being. We cannot meet that standard. But Jesus Christ, God's own son, took on flesh, and notice the wording in this verse, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not take on sinful flesh, but he took on a human body that was sinless. He lived a life of perfect obedience, so that in that flesh, sin was condemned. And that's why if we are in him, we face no condemnation. Paul also reinforces this tr truth that we're in Christ for another reason. Because he knows that Satan uses our guilt to make us doubt if we're forgiven. But he also knows that even though we're not controlled by our sinful nature, Time and time again, we find ourselves sinning. We find ourselves succumbing. So how does Paul know this? Well, because he's experienced these exact things himself. In the last verse of Romans chapter 7, we can see that Paul recounts for us this exact struggle that he faces. He knows that in his inner being, he's no longer controlled by his sinful nature. 
that he knows his physical body is sinful. And there's this continual battle. If you look at chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Or verse 23 of chapter 7. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That is why Paul opens chapter 8 with this great truth, to remind himself, to remind us, that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we face no condemnation for our sins. So I wonder, can you say that tonight? Can you say that because you are in Christ, you face no condemnation for your sins? If not, I would hope and pray that tonight he would speak to you, that you would call upon him and put your faith and trust in him. So that's our second point, that as believers, we're able to look forward with hope because we are living by the Spirit, because we are in Christ. And now the third one, the F, we are free from the bondage of sin. Now, I'm sure you'd agree that nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody likes to be controlled. Kids, do you like to be told what to do? Sometimes. Do you want to be, come live with me for a bit? <laughs> yeah, nobody likes to be controlled. It's debilitating. We've already seen this evening that Paul has made it clear we're all subjected to the bondage of corruption. Or to put it another way he uses, we are slaves to sin. Paul wasn't the only person to use this imagery of slavery to explain how sin controls us. Peter also says in his letter, we are slaves to corruption. And Jesus also used the same phrase. In John 8, we find him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I'm sure you're all familiar with what a slave is. It's somebody who is forced to do what the master wants. And that's the extent that sin has over us as unbelievers. We are forced to do what sin wants us to do. And I'm not just talking about our actions or what we say, but our inner being was a slave to sin. In Romans 6, Paul spends a great deal of time on this topic, telling and teaching what it means to be a slave to sin. But what I want us to see this, e this evening, what I want to emphasize is that we are free from that bondage. In fact, if you're a believer this evening, I want to remind you, you're not a slave to sin. You're a slave now to righteousness. But perhaps you may think that using that phrase slave to righteousness is not a good phrase to use. Because of all the negative connotations that being a slave brings, we think being a slave is a bad thing. But remember, our view of slavery and being a slave is a human view. It's of being a slave to a human master. But if we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, let's see what Paul says about being a slave to God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is making it clear that our bondage to God is not to be viewed in a negative way. There's been no fear involved for who it is we're bound to. We're not bound to a sinful human being who's a master. We are bound to the mighty, holy, just, gracious, loving and merciful God. And when we are bound to him, we are bound in the spirit of adoption so we can call him our loving Heavenly Father. We can refer to him as Abba, Father. What a thing to be able to say. What a thing to be able to call God our loving Heavenly Father. Are you able to refer to him that way tonight? Do you have that intimate relationship with him? And that, this truth that brings us uh, quite nicely onto my fourth one, 
the E in life. We are embraced by God. I don't know about you, but throughout the last two years, throughout all the lockdowns, I've heard many people say one of the main things they've missed is being able to hug a loved one. Yeah, or to use another word, kutch. It's a lovely thing. It's a special thing. It can mean so much. It can bring so much comfort. There's many occasions in life where we all need comforting. There are times when we may feel overwhelmed, may feel lonely, may feel sadness. In those times when somebody gives you a kutch, it's a great deal of comfort. It brings security. Obviously, that amount of security depends on who's giving you the kutch. If a child would give you a kutch, it's not as secure as a big person giving you a kutch, is it? Well, at the end of this chapter, this is what Paul focuses on. The sense of security a believer can have knowing that we are embraced by God. He reminds us of why our hope is so secure. He reminds us what it means to be embraced by the loving arms of God. God's embrace cannot be compared to anything in this world. Paul knows this, and that's why he's able to say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Despite all the sufferings, all the difficulties and challenges we face, despite the fact that he knew this world was corrupt as a result of sin, he was able to look to the future. He was still able to be positive. And in fact, Paul tells us in his other writings, he rejoiced in suffering because he knew his hope for the future was dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ alone and nothing could separate him from it. Christ had accomplished all that needed to be accomplished and he was safe in God's arms. Paul knew that the mighty sovereign God is in control of all things. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. Nothing thwart can thwart his plans. And this provides the reason why we can look forward to that day when God's glory will be revealed. Because we can know with certainty that God has determined a purpose for us all. He's determined a plan for us all. And they will be accomplished. That's why there's so much comfort and security to be found in this passage. It tells a believer, not only have you been saved by God, but he's determined everything for you. He's accomplished everything for you. And you will be saved and glorified with Christ. Verse 30. And those who he possessed, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the remaining verses of this chapter, uh, verses 31 to 39, Paul emphasizes why a Christian can have such great a sense of security. It's as if he provides a conclusion to this book. Look how he starts his conclusion in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? The, the things the, the, these things he's referring to is everything he's already stated. Everything he's emphasized in the pre preceding verses. The fact that we are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. The fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. The fact that we are now living in the Spirit. The fact that we no longer face any condemnation. The fact that we are joint heirs with Christ. The fact that one day we will be glorified in the same manner Christ will. The fact that we have the Spirit of God living in us, helping us every day. The fact that this is all true because of God's grace. But most of all, the fact that God has planned it. God has determined and accomplished everything to make it possible. Paul then poses this question. Having considered everything I've told you, everything I've said, what can we say? And it's quite a simple answer. 
if God is for us, who can be against us? I don't think any of us can deny the comfort, the security, the assurance that brings to a believer. It reminds us just what it is to be held, embraced by the loving arms of God. It provides the level of security that we need, the level of security we need in this fallen world, that we have a hope, a sure and certain hope for the future. So I hope this evening, as we briefly examine this passage, it's been made clear to you what Paul is trying to reinforce. In order to be able to face the sufferings, the difficulties, and the upset and the challenges this life brings, we need to ensure our perspective is right. We must not be focused on the moment or even this, this present age, but we must look forward to that day when God's glory will be revealed. In that moment, God's glory will be revealed in us because we are now joint heirs with Christ. Just as we are to suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Not that we deserve to be, for we've done nothing to deserve it. God has revealed his grace in us so that his glory will be revealed in us. There's nothing that now can separate us from the love of God. But as I said at the start, it's not easy to maintain that perspective, especially in the middle of a difficult time or a moment of suffering. But in those moments, if you're a believer this evening, you can remind yourself of the truth that we've seen tonight. Remind yourself that you've got the Spirit of God living inside you. He will help you on a daily basis to see what God wants for you. He will help you resist your sinful desire and will empower you to face all that God wants you to face. Remind yourself that you are now in Christ. No matter how much Satan will tempt you to despair and tell you of the guilt within, remember, you are now facing no condemnation because you are in Christ. Remind yourself, you are no longer controlled by sin. Your nature has been changed. Whilst you still live in a fallen body, in a fallen world, the Spirit will enable you to live a life that glorifies God. And finally, remind yourself, you've been embraced by the loving arms of God. And nothing at all can separate you from the love of God, Christ Jesus our Lord.